the Mind and Matter podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Sarah Otto. Before that, just some housekeeping items. One, we're back to our normal weekly schedule. So moving forward, there should be episodes pretty much every week on Fridays. Second, I've started a weekly newsletter, which I'm also sending out on Fridays. And you can sign up for that in the link in the episode description. This newsletter will contain updates on the podcast, such as the episode that came out that week, as well as upcoming guests. It will contain some highlights from the scientific research literature that I find interesting and that I looked at in the past week or so. It will contain some curated lists and links to interesting science-related topics in the news, typically things that are related to what's been on the podcast. And it will contain excerpts and quotes from some of the books and other content that I've been reading that I think you'll find interesting. It might also contain some short or even medium-form writing, just my thoughts on any topic that might be on my mind, especially if it relates to something that's been on the podcast recently. And other than that, we're back to our normal weekly cadence. So this week, I spoke with evolutionary biologist Sarah Otto. Sarah recently published a paper a month or two ago about the evolution of SARS-CoV-2, especially the evolution of new variants that you have probably heard about in the news. I talked to Sarah about evolution generally, but we focused a lot on SARS-CoV-2, given the urgency of that topic. So Sarah talked about the nature of genetic mutations and how different types of mutations tend to arise in different types of viruses. We talked a lot about SARS-CoV-2 in particular, especially some of the new variants that have arisen recently and what those have been. We got Sarah's thoughts on where this virus is going and what we might expect in the near future. We also discussed some of the new vaccines, including mRNA vaccines that have been out and how those are working relative to this virus and how all of these things interact and what the general evolutionary dynamics are that we have seen so far with this virus and how that helps us think about where it actually might be going in the future. Towards the end, we also talked about Sarah's research more generally, her interest in evolutionary biology, population genetics, and the evolution of sex. Today's show is brought to you in part by Dosist, an all-natural cannabis company specializing in dose-controlled cannabis products made with plant-based ingredients. To learn more about Dosist, their products, and where they are available, please visit their website through the link in the episode description. And with that, here's my conversation with Sarah Otto. Sally Otto, thank you for joining me. Absolutely. Can you start off by just giving everyone a brief overview of who you are and what you do? I'm an evolutionary biologist. I mainly use math modeling to predict and understand how evolution proceeds. It actually is very complicated with all sorts of things happening at the same time. As we can see with a pandemic, there's mutations going on and selection going on and movement over space. And to combine all of those forces together, math can really help us kind of see what will work and what won't. Just like an economist would maybe use models to predict how an economy will change. That's kind of what I do with math and understanding evolution. Hmm. So a lot of what we're going to talk about today is the evolution of SARS-CoV-2. But I want to spend a little bit of time just getting listeners up to speed on some very, very basic stuff about viruses generally in this virus, as well as some basic stuff about mutation and selection mm -hmm. and some of these terms that you deal with a lot. So let's just start with SARS-CoV-2. What is a virus and what kind of virus is this one? Yeah. So viruses, there are many forms of it. And one of the basic um, divisions is whether it stores its genetic information in RNA or in DNA. And this particular one is an RNA virus. Um, and so it uses bases, but not ACTG, ACUG, um, and those viruses that RNA um, gets inserted and used in your body, just like our bodies use RNA to turn our DNA into proteins. They're kind of shortchanging that process and going straight from RNA to protein. So first, the virus has to get into our cells, of course, um, and we can talk more about how that that happens um, that with SARS-CoV-2, and this is important evolutionarily, the spike protein, that thing you see on the outside, um, attaches to our cells to an ACE2 receptor, and that allows entry of the virus into our cells. The RNA then goes in, 
and uses our regular machinery to copy and turn that RNA either into other RNA copies or to translate it and turn it into proteins. So there's other types of viruses that are DNA-based, but the R, the R, this one is not. It's an RNA-based. And what does it matter if it's RNA or DNA-based? Well, it turns out RNA is a little bit um, more unstable. It's a lot easier to make mistakes when you copy RNA viruses. So a lot of RNA viruses have a really high uh, mistake or error rate, and that leads to mutations, which are changes to that um, information, that RNA information from virus to virus to virus. What about something like the common cold or the flu? How do those viruses compare to this one? Yeah, so the flu, um, the common cold, that actually a mixture of a whole bunch of different viruses. The flu is also an RNA virus. And the, the flu, so both then are RNA and kind of a little unstable. What is unusual about this type of coronavirus that um, causes COVID um, is that it actually has one part of inside its RNA code. It has one part that proofreads and double checks and makes sure that when it's replicated, that it's doing a good job. And so because of that, it actually turns over and mutates at a slightly lower rate. Um, I think it's about six times lower rate than the flu virus, which um, evolves faster. And the fast evolution of the flu virus, that fast turnover is why we have to get flu shots every couple of years. And why we get the flu over and over again in our lifetimes, unless we get a shot. I see. So the, so the flu virus is just changing very rapidly. It goes through mutations a lot. Yeah. What about the size of these viral genomes? How, how many base pairs are there? How many genes do they have? And is that going to be important for anything we discuss? Yeah. So the, the partly because it's an RNA virus with an ability to check, it's actually got a bigger genome. It's 29,000 or so base pairs. And, you know, I think we there's still a lot that we don't know because sometimes there'll be a part of the RNA is like, is this doing something or not doing something? There's so I I I, I can't tell you exactly um, how many genes precisely or how many aspects of the RNA are coding for something that's important to the virus. But we know the big ones. We know what helps it get into the cell. We know how what the um, the nucleocapsid gene is really important to kind of form the um, virus, what we see, and then those spike proteins as well. So those are um, some of the very important genes. Why they're particularly important, those outside ones are important to what our immune systems see. That's, that's the, they're the outward face of this virus. Um, and other genes are involved in that replication within ourselves. And honestly, we know still very little about what genes are important and how they're important and kind of subverting the normal cellular machinery and turning it into a virus making factory. Hmm. So when we talk about mutations, we mean that somehow the sequence of RNA in this case changes. Can you talk a little bit about genetic mutations in the context of evolution. And in particular, I'm hoping you can describe for people the difference between adaptive, neutral, and deleterious mutations. What yeah. are those and how common are they relative to each other? Uh, let's start by an analogy. <laughs> You've got a vacuum cleaner mm -hmm. and you kick it. Now, now, most of the time, if you kick it, it's either not going to break your vacuum cleaner or it's probably going to make it worse. So if it doesn't do anything, then that's a neutral mutation. It's a change that doesn't do anything. If you just broke your vacuum cleaner, then that's a deleterious mutation, something bad for it. Maybe your vacuum cleaner wasn't perfect before, and maybe by some remote chance you kick it and it makes the vacuum cleaner better. Those would be beneficial mutations. But just like a vacuum cleaner, most organisms that have evolved are functioning pretty well. So it's pretty rare to change them and make them a more, a better functioning organism. And that's true for this virus as well. It's evolved for millions of years. And so most mutations either hurt it, and by hurting it means make, it, that means it makes it less likely to be able to transmit from person to person and persist over evolutionary time. Neutral means it has no effect on that. And beneficial from the virus's point of view is just about that transmission and persisting over time. And so when we think about those different types of mutations and what the virus wants, if we anthropomorphize the virus, yeah. what's the difference between 
natural selection and, and adaptation versus genetic drift? I've heard that term come up. Yeah, so selection is about um, uh, about for a virus, that transmission and persistence, anything, any change that allows that virus to better transmit and better make viral babies that um, transmit and persist over time, those will be favored by natural selection. On the other hand, something that makes it not able to get inside a cell would be disfavored by natural selection. So natural selection is this, is the process that about um, the kind of differential success and failure of any of the variants, any of the mutations that arise in any organism. So natural selection is that process of um, the ones that are better able to survive and reproduce do so. And the ones that can't are eliminated. Now you mentioned another term, which is a pretty um, spe specialized evolutionary term, and that is genetic drift or random genetic drift. And and that's an important uh, process too, because not all changes that we see are evolution by natural selection. We also see ev evolution just means change, so change in a population that you're following. So change can happen because of natural selection, but it can also happen because of drift. And by that, imagine you had a bowl of M&Ms and you only picked one that out. You need to have a lot of variation in your original bowl, lots of colors. You picked one out and it's red. So now that is genetic drift. There's been a change in frequency from a mixture to 100% red. And that process happens a lot. And it happens a lot with viruses because you can have a large population of viruses within our body, but only one virus is lucky enough to transmit to the next individual. So there's a big element of chance that happens there. And um, even if you have, a, if you're talking about different people and lots of different viruses within different people, um, there's also a lot of chance in which of those people happen to board an airplane and fly to another country and, and bring um, SARS-CoV-2 with them to this other country. So that those chance events play have played an enormous role in the unfolding of the pandemic. Um, particularly, we saw um, who first uh, took the virus from Asia to Europe. That was just a random uh, kind of a draw of the people that were there in China. And that caused the frequency to shift in Europe relative to what we saw in China. So that's evolution, but it's not evolution by natural selection. It's evolution by chance. And so when we think about mutations happening to create new variants, which we'll come to, what part of this virus's life cycle is all that mutation happening? Yeah, so those mutations are, um, as far as we know, all happening during replication. So that would be all within our bodies. Um, and, um, so, you know, so it goes into our cell. The RNA is um, replicated to more RNA strands. It's not perfect. So that's the where the majority of mutations, if not all of them, are occurring. So it's when, yeah, it's when the virus is inside of us. It's not like the virus is floating around and picking up mutations Oh. No, I mean, it's possible, um, but I would expect that that would be more damage, which would be mm -hmm. then probably make the um, virus unable to infect. Like, for example, we know um, ultraviolet rays are a mutagen. They can cause us our um, DNA to mutate, and that's why we're advised to wear sunscreen. Well, um, more likely for a virus, it damages it, and then it's done. Mm -hmm. So... The virus um, can infect someone, it's inside their body, it starts to replicate, and during that replication process, errors happen, mutations happen, and now we get sort of different variations on the original virus that are yeah. inside of that host body. Can you unpack some different terms for people, variant, lineage, strain, and species? And I guess the overarching question is, you know, how, how much difference has to arise before we talk about two viruses being variants of each other versus different strains, et cetera? Yeah. yeah. Lots of terms. So strains um, are is a term referred to for very distantly related um, viruses. So we'll talk about one different coronavirus strains. SARS-CoV-2 is one strain. So we're not, none of the variability that we see in the pandemic is creating different strains. Variance is a loose term. And so one mutation can create a new variant. 
And, um, uh, but not all, as I mentioned, not all variants matter. Some could be neutral, some could be deleterious. And so that's why the um, World Health Organization introduced this new terminology, which is variant of concern. A variant of concern is one of these types of virus, but that actually has an impact on disease. It either transmits better, it causes more severe disease, or it gets around our immune reaction, either um, an immune reaction because we're vaccinated or an immune reaction because we've already had COVID. So there's variants of concern. There's um, variants of interest, which are, oh, there's something suspicious about this variant, the, the mutation that's happened in this particular virus, something suspicious. We're going to keep an eye on it. Um, maybe it has changes in that spike protein that'll make it more likely to get into our cell. Or, um, you know, maybe those are the main ones that cause it, or maybe it's just risen in really in high frequency. For example, we saw that lambda rose in really high frequency in Peru or Chile. That might be because of some genetic change in that variant, or it might have been those evolution by chance events that the that that um, the people that happened to kind of first come and cause COVID to spread in those countries happen to carry Lambda. So that's what we, that um, is what is a variant of, of um, interest. And then there's variants under investigation, which are kind of similar to that. But anyway, let's step back. Variant of concern is something we know to be harmful, uh, more harmful to us as humans. It's a very human oriented perspective, but a variant is any variation caused by mutation. Lineage and clade, those are more technologic, uh, technical terms. Lineage, so evolution is unfolding. It's creating uh, what's called technically a phylogenetic tree of life. Um, but you can think of it as a family tree. And so a lineage is a branch on that family tree of these viruses. So if I pass the virus on to you, and then you pass it on to somebody else, that creates a lineage of descent where the virus has passed from person to person. Those close, those lineages tend to be very similar to one another until enough time has passed. And so the, there's a kind of correspondence to how close you are on the family tree of viruses and how similar your RNA, the RNA sequences will be. I see. So variants are different versions of the same strain within the same lineage. They're very closely related. And sometimes they're of concern to us because it increases the transmissibility or something of the virus. And sometimes they're not. Yeah. Before we get into some of the new SARS-CoV-2 variants that people have maybe heard about in the news, I want to talk a little bit about um, different types of people in terms of how viruses mutate. So I was reading one of your review papers and you talked a lot about the importance when thinking about viral evolution of immunocompromised individuals. Mm -hmm. So why, why is that population of people important here? Yeah. So mutations happen just by chance, but there, it ends up being on average, like a clock, you know, you see every month or so there's a couple, a, a change in this um, virus. Um, and, and so we can watch and as changes accumulate, we expect it to tick at a certain rate. Mm -hmm. and, and, but sometimes, and in some people, we see a lot more mutations than others. Um, and immunocompromised individuals, some of them have been suffering from COVID for six months. And this isn't like long COVID. Most people with long COVID don't have persistent virus, but immunocompromised individuals are, have COVID replicated, the virus replicating within their body for months, um, over six months in some cases. And in, the, in those patients, they're less able to suppress the virus. The virus is able to replicate more times, reach a higher population size and replicate and replicate and replicate. And it's that um, fast and large series of replications that cause it, um, higher um, mutation rate and a higher accumulation of mutations within those individuals. I see. So they, they have an immune system that's compromised in some way. They simply can't get rid of the virus. So there's, there's just many more chances for the virus to continue to replicate and accumulate mm. more mutations. Yeah. Is this quite a diverse group of individuals? Do they, is this tend to be people that have pre-existing diseases that make them immunocompromised? 
Yeah, there's a few reasons. I think some people are born immunocompromised. Others are on immunosuppressant drugs in order to tackle um, a, a cancer or other thing that they are dealing with. So there are a number of reasons why people can be immunocompromised. And, even, and I think that term can encompass a, an array from really no immune system to a weakened immune system. Mm-hmm. And so somebody with a weakened immune system can still fight um, SARS-CoV-2 off. So we're really talking about just a handful of people that have been followed, tracked um, over months so that we know in those people, at least, we have this fast turnover of virus and a higher than expected mutation rate. Now, why that matters is it turns out that that, that the variants of concern that have emerged, particularly alpha, it was puzzling because we have this kind of molecular clock ticking along, the virus is changing at this kind of predictable rate, la, 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 la. And then all of a sudden, boom, there's a strain alpha that appeared, B117, it was first called in the UK. And it had like 20 more mutations than we'd expect for a virus that has been circulating in humans for that amount of time. And so, you know, my first thought was, well, maybe it was passage through a mink or another animal because we've known that there's been human to animal back to human transmission of SARS-CoV-2. But there was no, there was no sign of that, no sign of anybody in the history of that virus being um, near a mink farm or anything like that. So the most likely explanation. And it had kind of the same sorts of changes that we see in immunocompromised individuals, lots of changes in the spike protein. So the working hypothesis is that somewhere along the lineage leading to alpha, a person that happened to get it was immunocompromised um, and had a higher than average rate of replication leading to this boost in mutations. So alpha was that first variant of concern from the UK. Is the convention for something like this to go alpha, beta, and so on and so forth? No, um, the B117 terminology is really more like on this family tree or phylogeny of the virus. It's labeling the different branches and numbering them that way. And, you know, um, the, the WHO was recognizing it was hard for everybody to keep track. B1617.2, <laughs> that's Delta. It's hard to, <laughs> to keep track of it. So they came up with this convention of giving it a Greek letter, alpha for the one in the UK, beta for the one in South Africa, gamma for the one in Brazil, delta for the one that first rose in uh, um, frequency in India. But the problem with that is that's static, right? You can't give an evolving thing a Mm -hmm. static name. So we've got Delta, but actually already there's tons of variants within Delta. And we don't know which of them matter, if any. So Mm -hmm. giving it a name, there's going to be a Delta point one or a Delta, you know, we're going to have to go, (laughs) we're going to run out of Greek letters. Um, (laughs) So... One thing that strikes me is, and this could just be my ignorance, um, we, we're you know we've already got these you know handful of variants for this virus, but earlier you were talking about how the flu actually mutates faster. So are we seeing like the typical amount of of variants come up for this virus that you would expect based on its uh, mutation rate and its basic biology, or are more popping up than than you would expect? Yeah, I think. Well, our expectation is based on that first year of um, trends where it was really the number of mutations um, over time was was a nice linear trend, fit it well. And then we're seeing these boosts. So, so yes and no, we're seeing that um, the virus is making kind of leapfroggy jumps in mutation rates. And really why, why that probably is and why we know it is just there are so many cases worldwide, something happens and this is you know, kind of an accident of evolution. It goes through an individual that, um, in which the virus is better able to replicate and does so more often, introducing more mutations. With these variants, have there been any patterns? Like, do they have similar mutations causing similar phenotypic changes? And, and what have those been? What parts of the virus are changing? 
yeah. So there are the same mutation has appeared over and over and over again. Um, uh, so all of those twenty nine thousand base pairs, pretty much the the we've had so many cases globally now that the evolution has kind of explored all possible um, changes. But that's one change at a time, and and it's combinations of these changes that. Um, really lead the virus into kind of evolutionarily unexplored space. And we're still, you know, you said about the phenotype of the virus, the phenotype of the virus is something that we can't directly measure. We can't directly measure whether it transmits better. We can't directly measure whether it leads people into the hospital more often. And, the, and it can be very difficult to make the kind of statistical association between the, which genetic changes underlie higher hospitalization rates or faster transmission. But it is interesting that the, during the first year of the virus, we really didn't see one strain taking over the world. And if you looked at that evolutionary tree of life, you could tell that that was true because it was kind of like everything was doing pretty well and all lineages were persisting um, almost equally. And then alpha arose and we saw something different. All of a sudden now this strain, this, sorry, not strain, right? This variant um, with the mutations that it held was spreading faster and faster. And so that part of the evolutionary tree of the virus grew to be much more predominant. And it, um, country after country after country in which alpha was found, it was displacing the previous variants of SARS-CoV-2. And now, of course, we're seeing that same thing play out, but with Delta replacing Alpha. Hmm. And this has, primarily been, this has primarily been through increased transmissibility so far? Yeah. So the, that's, a, that's a statistical thing. And the, stat, the statistical assessments have been like doing the following, looking at households of a known case to see um, how often the household members get infected. And with Delta, more of the household members get infected than with alpha. And for alpha, more of the household members get infected than with the wild, wild type strain that originated in humans. Mm -hmm. And is that what we would expect at this stage? Would we expect um, a lot more uh, higher transmissibility to be favored, say, as opposed to a deadlier virus? And, and if so, like, why, why is that the expectation? Yeah. So for, uh, for, the, for the virus, its evolutionary fate just depends on persisting and transmitting. And anything it does to us really is kind of a side consequence. Um, now, in some, for some diseases, that if, if the virus kills you, then it's unable to transmit. But with SARS-CoV-2, it's, it's unusual in that most deaths are long after the virus has come and gone and rep the viral load has um, risen and fallen. And then the deaths happen in the month after that. And that's because most, it seems like most of the severe cases are immune reactions and um, kind of spiraling out of control. And it's not actually the virus replicating within our body. And so because of that, those severe side, those severe outcomes of, of COVID are um, not important to the virus's transmission because they happen mm -hmm. long after the virus transmits. So selection can't really see that part. Selection can't see it. So that doesn't mean um, the virus can't evolve and affect our hospitalization and death rates. It mm -hmm. means it's evolving to transmit effectively. And as a side consequence, it could increase or decrease mortality rate. I see. So, well, I had a next question, but I'm, I'm already thinking a little bit ahead now. I have heard, and I don't know if this is true at all, but I have heard many times from many different people that in general, viruses tend to become less virulent over time. First of all, is that true? And then what do we expect that for this virus? It almost sounded like what you were saying, though, is we wouldn't necessarily expect that because you have that dissociation between when it replicates and when it becomes a problem. Exactly, exactly. And, and you really have to get your mind into the perspective of the virus. You have to really think, okay, I'm this virus. How am I evolving over time? Some diseases, it's through the death that the virus is actually transmitted. 
or the pathogen into the environment. In that case, higher death rates can evolve because that makes it easier for that pathogen mm. to get transmitted. In other cases, and this is where that kind of classic thought um, um, comes from, death takes the person out of circulation. And so if that, and then the virus can't transmit. So you re, it's really a pathogen by pathogen question. And for SARS-CoV-2, as we were talking about, the virus is, um, as far as the virus's evolution is concerned, our deaths are immaterial. I see. So there's there's not necessarily any direct selection for this virus to become deadlier. However, if it does become deadlier, there's nothing sort of pushing that Stopping down. Stopping it, yeah, yeah. That's right. Well, that's unfortunate. That's unfortunate, yeah. I, but, you know, that does mean... And so the two major variants, Alpha and Delta, are both deadlier, unfortunately, leading to more severe disease. But that doesn't mean that the next variant will necessarily be one that causes more severe. And so that's maybe good in that we, we may in the future be dealing with a variant that drives down hospitalization rates. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. The other thing I wanted to ask you about was on the transmission side. So you had this one concept in this paper that was pretty much the 80-20 rule that you hear about in lots of different yeah. contexts, but the term that, that was in the paper was over-dispersion. So what is that and how, how to, why is that important for thinking about transmission? Yeah, so um, not everybody that gets infected is equally likely to transmit the virus to others. And we still really don't know why that is. And it could be something as simple as which cells inside our body get infected and is it easier for us to cough them out or breathe them out? And so is it in our nasal passages or does it are deep in our lungs? And that can infect, affect the um, transmission probability from a single infected individual. And so people I think are more, this over dispersion has to do with this kind of concept of um, super spreaders, individuals that, um, that may be more likely to spread the virus from person to person. There's super spreader people, which is how they are infected and how they interact with the world means the virus can get out of them better. And then there's super spreader events where there, it's nothing unusual about that particular patient, but more that the environment allowed the virus to remain airborne and infect more people because it was a crowded indoor environment without good ventilation. I see. One of the things I want to discuss too is vaccination. So well, actually, before we get there, you know, it sounds so far, if I sort of, sort of piece some things together, viruses accumulate mutations predominantly inside our bodies after we've been infected. So the new variants are going to come from having arisen inside someone that got an yeah. infection and then they, they start transmitting to others. So the more people that are getting infected and holding on to the, especially if they're holding on to the virus for a long period of time, such as if they're immunocompromised, that's just more and more chances for new mutations. And so more and more chances for new variants is part of the reason that we're seeing now several variants arise so far for SARS-CoV-2 because so many people have yet to get vaccinated or, or just get natural immunity. And so I, I guess my question is, would you expect us to see several new variants from now? Yeah, so the number of variants and the variety that we see across the world really depends on the case count. When, so we, when we have globally mm -hmm. high case counts around the world, then that's just more evolutionary tickets that this um, virus is um, buying in its jackpot. Um, so, but so far, um, with maybe the exception of beta and gamma, most of the selection for alpha, and I think for Delta as well, had nothing to do with vaccines or with people that had had previous exposure to the virus. Because, you know, beginning of 2019, none of us had exposure to SARS-CoV-2. And so that was, it's, the virus has been mainly evolving in a fairly naive population. But there, you know, the gamma from Brazil, there was, there was evidence that a lot of people had been infected there previously, that a lot of people had immune mm. 
um, natural immunity to SARS-CoV-2, and yet this took off like wildfire. So we're still unsure if that was because that variant was better able to reinfect somebody that it had previous, that kind of to evade the immune reaction, better able to get in, or if it just was spreading in that remaining population that hadn't gotten it the first time. So that it's still a little unclear whether and to what extent these viruses are getting a fitness boost by mm -hmm. not just transmitting better between everybody, but transmitting to people that other viruses can't get into. Mm -hmm. Is there a good chance? I mean, people are already talking about booster shots and things. Yeah. Is there a good chance that this is going to be something, this particular virus and its variants, this will be something where people will be asked to get vaccines every year, sort of like a flu shot? No, I don't think so because of the slower mutation rate. Um, we may get, we may need a booster in the next year, simply because there's so many global cases that we are evolving these kind of um, unusual events happen where there's a higher number of mutations and we're just getting more and more variation across the, across the world. Mm -hmm. So I expect maybe in the next couple of years, a booster will be necessary, but then not so often as the flu after that. I see. Is there any risk? So I don't know what the precise numbers are. I think we have a majority of the adult population, at least in the U.S., vaccinated or in somewhere in the, the one to two dose range for vaccination. But there's a sizable chunk that have not. And, you know, for better or worse, it looks like a lot of people will not elect to get a vaccine for whatever reason. Is there any danger in having that sort of like sizable chunk of the population that never gets the vaccine. And that sort of creates a window for mm -hmm. sort of a perpetual evolution of new virus, new, new variants. Yeah. Um, yes, absolutely. So, um, and having that population constantly in contact with vaccinated individuals means that there's a lot of opportunities for transmission to happen and opportunities for mutations to arise that can then get into vaccinated individuals. Hmm. And so, if the, the if we could aim, we should be aiming for a hundred percent vaccination. The number one reason is if you have twenty percent of your population unvaccinated, you have twenty percent of the population that can land in the hospital and die from COVID nineteen. So get vaccinated it, um, to protect your own health, but also get vaccinated because you don't want to be the one that transmits it to your neighbor, or your friend, or your um, parents. And, and then lands them in hospital. So get vaccinated because you don't want to be the cause of somebody else's COVID-19 severe reaction. And then finally, and this is low down on that list, but it's still in there, get vaccinated so that you um, make it a little bit harder for this virus to um, persist and spread within the human population. You thwart its evolution. Mm -hmm. So which vaccine did you get? Did you get one of the mRNA vaccines or Moderna. one of the other? Moderna. And can you explain for people what those mRNA, mRNA vaccines are as compared to a traditional vaccine? So Moderna and Pfizer are giving the little instruction manual, the mRNA, but just for one protein, the spike protein. And the reason why the companies developed it for that is that's also on the outside. That's what our immune systems see. And so it's one of the safest um, vaccines ever produced in that it's, you know, it's not an inactivated virus. It doesn't have all of the um, genetic coding it would need to actually make a virus. It's just this teeny piece of the genome that just makes one protein. Um, and, uh, you know, honestly, I think that it works better than anybody ever expected it to, that, that we just be inserting the, the um, RNA in our bodies would take hold and recognize it and amount such an immune reaction. So it's really quite, quite impressive how much protection you get, even after one dose and especially after two doses. Mm -hmm. And now, did you choose to get that one or is that just the one that you happen to get? Um, it is the one that I happened to get. Um, a lot of people here of my age group were had AstraZeneca, but it was all out when I was looking. So anyway, yes, I could have gotten AstraZeneca, but it was Moderna that I did. Get. Mm -hmm. Now, if given the choice, is there any evidence that these are clearly more effective than the traditional style vaccines? Or is it comparable? The mRNA versus AstraZeneca? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, the, it, it depends on what exactly you look at. So 
AstraZeneca does have a very, very, very small side effect um, risk of clotting. Um, and so, you know, given equal availability, then go for the one with the lowest um, risk. If you look at protection against symptomatic disease, oftentimes the mRNA virus vaccines have um, higher protection. But if you look at protection against hospitalization and death, then AstraZeneca is often at the top of the list. So it's a, you know, it's a little bit hard um, to know. And of course, the other question is, what about with variants and which of the, these um, vaccines is going to give confer a stronger reaction? And then, you know what, it could depend on the variant. With Delta, we're seeing that the mRNA vaccines are doing really well. Now, the mRNA vaccines are interesting because not only have they performed so well, but as you mentioned, the mRNA they contain encodes the spike protein only. Now, mm -hmm. naively, I might think that that would, that would lead to an immune reaction that was very specific for the spike protein and perhaps not so good at recognizing other parts of the virus. And so it's sort of like a less, um, just a, sort of a less robust overall immune response. Are we seeing any indication of that so far? Not yet. You know, it, um, when people were looking at what our antibodies were reacting against, it turned out it was like a lot of the different parts of the virus, but mainly the nucleocapsid and even more so the spike protein. So you're basically, the, they've designed the vaccine for exactly the target that is normally recognized by our immune system. And let's say about 50% of the time, if our antibodies are made against spike. Are you saying... In response to an mRNA vaccine, we're making no. In, in, in a natural oh. infection, then the the most antibodies are. I, I can't remember exactly the numbers, but let's say fifty percent spike, forty percent nucleocapsid, everything else a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so there's this kind of correspondence between a natural reaction and the reaction to only this one little piece, the spike. The other thing about spike is it has to get the vi the virus has to get inside our cells. So it's constrained and evolutionary constraint is an important concept of something that can't change too much or it won't function. And so the spike can't change too much or it won't attach to the AC2 receptors and get inside our cells. So that constraint is also a good thing because that means mm -hmm. the virus can't mute. Some mutations are prevented from happening. I see. So, so we can have some of these new variants with spike protein mutations that allow that variant to transmit better, but there really is a sort of limit to how many of those could, could happen. That's right. There is a limit because um, the, they would be deleterious if they prevent it from getting inside our cells. But the other thing that's kind of interesting is in, uh, there's a lot of unknowns. And so here are a few unknowns. The, the virus is mutating, it's accumulating changes. And so eventually our immune reactions that are primed by our RNA virus won't recognize something that's very, very, very distant. Um, and so as the mutations accumulate, mutations that will happen. But um, so what, we'll have boosters, but the fact that we didn't use nucleocapsid in our first by, um, RNA vaccines mean that it's kind of in, it's a, it's a, it's another tool we could use in future vaccine development, targeting a different part of the um, virus. And so I think we may see that that turns out to have been a really strong element, a strong benefit of having a one protein vaccine. Let me tell you a little bit more about why I think that might turn out to be important is that if you get a boost, so there was a, if you get a booster with a vaccine that's been targeted to a different variant, that may not actually cause you to recognize the variant very well, because it's mainly going to boost your memory immune cells that are already targeting the first vaccine that you had. So it's called um, the... Uh, hypothesis of original sin in terms of immunology. What you first, the disease that you, the variant that you first got exposed to is the one that you're best able to fight for the rest of your life. Um, and, and we don't know if that's going to play out with um, SARS-CoV-2, but it does mean that boosters may not, you, you might not just be able to go, oh, now I'm going to get the the Delta booster, and now I'm going to get the Omega booster. Mm -hmm. and, and your immune system may not track that, those changes 
as well because it, they're primed for in you know in my case they were primed for the Wuhan strain the original strain. Mm-hmm. Interesting. What do you make of, and can you just explain for people the programmability of these new mRNA vaccines? What exactly does that mean? And how, how do you look, I mean, how, how do you look at that in terms of our ability to adapt to new viruses in the future? Not necessarily this virus either, but yeah. what, what do those mRNA yeah. vaccines allow us to I do? Think they're, they're game changers because, um, well, <laughs> I'm not in the lab actually making them, so I should be careful, but they basically allow a, DNA, a sequence, an RNA sequence, to be converted into a vaccine. They can design it and convert it within a matter of weeks, which is, you know, so amazingly quick. It's harder to get, the hard part is getting it approved mm-hmm. and getting it manufactured, but the design of it is no longer a major challenge, which is amazing. And do you imagine that we'll be seeing more of these mRNA vaccines for other things in the near future? Yeah, absolutely. And the other the other thing, the trick that a lot of um, vaccine producers are, are aiming for are what are those evolutionarily constrained parts of a mm. virus that are just so like, I can't change at all or I'm not going to work. Because if you target your vaccine there, then the virus can't evolve and escape your immune reaction. That makes sense. Yeah. What about the length of immunity? Obviously, only you know, so many months have gone by so far for us to have even done some of these measurements, but how, is there any data out there right now that shows us that people are having a persistent immune reaction, either from a natural infection or from these mRNA vaccines so far? Yeah. And so we're accumulating more data, including from vaccinated individuals, because it's now been months since Mm -hmm. the, um, and so first of all, your listeners should know the immune system is incredibly complicated and we don't understand how it all works. And we don't understand how it all works in general, let alone for this particular uh, virus. So there's some really fundamental things that we don't know, like, um, let me toss some terms around neutralizing antibodies or antibodies. And then there's T cell and B cells and they do different things. So it's still unclear how important the neutralizing component is of those neutralizing antibodies or the T cells. And and so these are like different armaments, different ways of fighting a disease that our bodies have evolved to do. And our bodies have evolved these incredibly complex um, armories of different tools to attack a virus. Okay. So now let's, let's dig into that. Can you, can you actually explain those neutralizing antibodies and yeah. T cells? Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Well, you should get a, a guess that's an immunologist because this is going to be uh, a cartoon version, but that's what I'll give you. So neutralizing antibodies, they are called neutralizing because they prevent the vaccine, the virus from actually getting inside our body. So they, and that's because they attach to the part of spike that needs to attach to our AC2. So if the antibody attaches there, the virus can't get in. And that's what it, it neutralizes the virus, preventing it from even entering in our, into our cells in the first place. So that neutralizing antibody is great news. And that's, that's what we um, like to see um, that, um, um, a lot of the rapid antigen tests can assess those antibodies. We like to see them because it means the virus can't even infect an individual. But those wane over time and they normally wane. We don't have neutralizing antibodies that these are sky high levels for the rest of our lives. Mm-hmm. It's typical that it rises and then falls in about a six month period. And that's what we're seeing with COVID-19 as well. So we have that kind of, you can't get inside me protection, but only for a little while. Then the antibody levels plateau at some lower level. Now, the T cell and B cells do other things. They recognize cells that are infected, and then they get them out of the system. The B cells do things like, say, to um, uh, amplify um, and produce those antibodies kind of over the long term. So these these B cell and T cell um, over the long term are kind of your long-term memory of, of past viruses. And, and so they can, when they kick in, they recognize, oh, these cells are infected, get rid of them. They also recognize, oh, I need to make those antibodies, those neutralizing antibodies again. And so they start kicking up a storm. 
So those, so um, those all play a role. I've heard, I've read that T cells play a more important role in actually protecting people from severe disease. So the neutralizing antibodies are really important in keeping you from getting infected, but keeping you out of the hospital, it, given that you did get infected, it's those T cells that play a really important role. Okay, so that's my, my cartoon understanding of what's going on inside our bodies. And those T cell and B cells are long-term. Uh, they are triggered by these memory cells that have long-term persistence. So what that leads me to predict is that our, ch our chance of getting infected after vaccination is probably really, really low in the first six months. But then after that, it, we may be more likely to get infected. But then our immune systems recognize this virus and, and kick it out. That's consistent with, sorry. Oh, I was just going to say, so that pattern that you're just describing there yeah. that we've seen in the response to SARS-CoV-2, it's actually pretty typical. Yeah. Yeah. Super typical. Um, and predicted by some of the best immunologists in the world. And they were like, do not, it's not, that's not um, atypical. And this is what we'd expect. And many of our vaccines last for decades um, in their efficacy because of these long-term memory reactions, not because of those kind of short-term neutralizing antibody reactions. Um, and, and, and so, um, you know, that right now we're seeing more cases of vaccinated individuals getting infected. There was this recent event in Providence, Rhode Island, where I think 300 vaccinated individuals were infected. And that sounds like a, a um, you know, a large number. But first of all, there were a lot of people there. So 300 out of tens of thousands is not a very large number. But the second, again, infection is not something that we should be that surprised by that that happens. And it's really um, were those individuals then cleared of the virus and healthy the next week. I see. So let's just say you get, you get just to summarize my understanding, you get vaccinated, you know, first six months, you've got these really high levels of neutralizing antibodies that are pretty much probably going to prevent that virus from getting back into you at all maybe another six months go by, the levels of those antibodies go down. So now it might be possible that virus or new variant gets back into you, but also it's likely that some of your other immune cells will be able to take care of it before it really does a lot of damage. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so that's why we're seeing things like 25 per, um, times lower hospitalization rates among mm -hmm. vaccinated individuals. Yeah. And I should say also that the neutralizing antibodies ramp up you know, like you get your vaccine in the first two weeks, you have no protection. Mm -hmm. And so they ramp up before they come down. I see. That's why it's super important to be cautious in those first two weeks or so after a vaccine. At least two weeks. Yeah. And even after that, it takes a while. It's maturing. So it takes a while to really ramp up. Mm -hmm. So what's the difference between a vaccine and antiviral medication? I've been hearing some talk about antiviral medications Typically, this is in a dis in discussions around you know prophylactics, things you might take to prevent the infection uh, before it even happens. Are there good antivirals for this virus? Is that something that would be ideal in combination with vaccines? What what do we think about that? You know, I, that's something that's outside of my area of expertise. Um, antivirals. I mean, the nice thing about vaccines is it, it feeds into our evolved immune system that's a, that pro provides this kind of really robust and multifaceted um, um, response that it's not just recognizing this part of spike, but it's recognizing lots of different parts of spike. Sometimes when we give drugs, and I'm just going to speak generally, when we give a drug to then then um, bacteria, viruses, fungi just evolve to avoid that drug in some way to do things in a slightly different way. So it's a little bit easier to outwit our drugs. And you see that with antibiotic resistance. We introduce a new antibiotic. Within six years, we've got antibiotic resistance. And, and that's because it's normally one thing. It's killing the bacteria in one way or the fungus in one way. And the, the microbe just does, <laughs> does something else. Mm -hmm. and avoids our, our attempts to kill it. But that's different than a vaccine because a vaccine goes into us and then, it, and then the 
hammers are all of these many, many different kinds of hammers that our immune system kicks in, not just one type of hammer. I see. So it sounds like overall, you're actually relatively optimistic, but I do want to ask just the overarching question of where do you see this virus and new variants going in the next six to 12 months? Oh, you know, and I, I oscillate between optimism and pessimism. Delta is now such a more transmissible variant and it causes hospitalization at such a high rate that, you know, the old, the Last year, thought that vaccines, if we got to 80% vaccinated, it would be all over. Now we're kind of at the point where it's like, you know what? We may still see circulating SARS-CoV-2, even if we got to 100% vaccination. People might not end up in the hospital at that point, but it's still able to transmit and infect even among um, vaccinated individuals. So that if that that just means that what we're dealing with is keeping people out of the hospital, keeping them from dying, but that there is not a chance of ending COVID-19. Mm-hmm. As an evolutionary biologist, generally speaking, are you because this is the first pandemic like this of my yeah. lifetime, and I think it's been you know beyond my lifetime before we've seen something quite quite this big and this global. Is that what you would expect, or are you actually would you expect that you know within my lifetime, within your lifetime, that we're going to see more pandemics like this from <laughs> other types of bugs? I hope not. Um, well, we yeah. So I think we were learning, we've learned a lot of lessons about pandemic response. I think there's this, this pandemic, but many of the other ones, it's the main message is you got to act fast and you got to act early. Travel shutdowns a lot earlier um, than we had, for example. So we may be learning those, but the other thing is we've changed the world so much. We've got so many people around the world. Our interactions with wildlife are so modified in contact with wildlife much more often, caging wildlife, um, which is uh, allows diseases to spread um, in those high density um, caged environments. So we are seeing evidence that um, viruses hop into hu- or humans more often um, in recent times. And so that just leads me to expect that we'll see more. And to some extent, other people more pessimistic than me are like, well, this is the easy pandemic, which is a horrible thing, you know, given the number of people that have died. But, but um, yeah. Yeah, but it, but it is, I mean, it is, we, we've seen, humanity has seen more, more deadly bugs in the yeah, past. So it's entirely right. possible. It is. Um, one thing I did want to ask you about is that human to animal transmission and in the other direction, is this happening more with this virus than with other coronaviruses or related viruses? And what does that mean for new variants and things like that? Yeah. yeah. So I don't know about other coronaviruses, but what, um, it, it does seem to be a fairly generalist virus. And that's because it uses ACE. Two, which is conserved and similar among a lot of mammalian hosts, and mm. and so because it's it's the the um, lock that it's unlocking to get into our cells, that um, protein is conserved. It can get into us. It can get into cats. It can get into gorillas. It can get into tigers, and so that, that we're seeing in minks and other we're seeing this virus jump from species to species to species. Now, a lot of times that's not true. And what ha- the kind of Achilles heel that the virus uses to get into our cells is very, very different from what a chimpanzee or gorilla or other species uses. And that's when most of, most of the time we're talking very host specific kinds of viruses that can't jump as easily. But that has this other, this consequence that we don't know we don't know which other, we know a lot of other animals have AC2 that are similar enough to our receptors. We also know that a lot of other animals have gotten infected by us. What we don't know is whether or not and which other species are going to actually have a pandemic on their own. And, and some of those pandemics may turn out not to kill those other species, like they could be just not, not lethal 
mm-hmm. to some species. And then those would just be a res- maybe a reservoir of this virus long-term. But for others, it could potentially drive them extinct. And we, I just don't know which of our, which wildlife species are at risk. It doesn't get into fish, doesn't get into birds, but of the mammals that it can get into, who's at risk? So this pandemic has really brought to light, and it's unfortunate that it takes something like this, the importance of evolutionary biology as a field of expertise that we want people to be knowledgeable of, because evolutionary biology is often sort of seen as a ivory tower, purely academic mm. part of biology. Do you have any general thoughts on, on that, you know, and the importance of having people at least have a basic understanding of evolutionary dynamics? Oh, absolutely. I mean, evolution, we understand life on this planet through evolution. And it's it's an incredibly rich field and a a way of thinking about organisms and how they've evolved and come to be the way they are. But, you know, when I started, I, it was, evolution was a bad word. And I would often say I was a population geneticist, which is another word for what I do, just to kind of avoid that seeming like an alien beast when I was on an airplane by somebody. But then, you know, 20, 30 years ago, I was like, you know, I'm going to take this on. I'm an evolutionary biologist. And it's important that people have a face to an evolutionary biologist. I'm not an alien. I'm not a monster. I'm, I'm a, a nice person. And it's that, um, and I think that, the, that this pandemic, but even before that, we've really understood we can't, um, we can't find antibiotics. We can't fight cancer without understanding evolution. We, with global climate change, species around the world are facing a completely different selection pressures. And we have to understand how they evolve in order to better protect wildlife in the world around us. So I think, I think people have come to accept that evolution is a, a kind of fundamental cornerstone of biology and of understanding life. Um, but that said, you know, still it's kind of funny is every once in a while the, the uh, radio, I'll be on the radio or on the news and they'll say, how should I introduce you? And I'll say, I'm an evolutionary biologist. And it's funny how often that evolution gets dropped out. And I don't know if that's because, you know, people don't want to, still are thinking of it as this bad word um, or what's going on, but let's normalize it. I'm an evolutionary biologist. So my, correct me if I'm wrong, but you don't focus a lot on viral evolution. So what, uh, what is your general research interest and what are you working on right now? Yeah. So I'm a generalist too. I, um, use, I've studied things like, um, what are the features that cause populations to go extinct? What are the features that make them more likely to persist? What's the math behind that extinction versus persistence? I'm also interested in the the evolution of how we reproduce. Why are we sexual? There's a lot of organisms on this um, planet that can reproduce asexually. It makes a lot more sense. (laughs) You know, you you, you don't have to find a mate. You don't have to risk disease transmission when you mate. Um, you, and you don't have to do this really weird thing of mixing your genome that you know that works because you're alive and able to reproduce and mix it with that genome of another individual to make this mixed up thing that who knows if that offspring will be able to survive to reproduce. So I've been doing a lot of mathematical modeling to figure out and a lot of the older theories didn't hold up very well. And so I've been really trying to, to figure out what the main reasons for the evolution of sex. And, you know, that, you know, you might be, that's weird, but it turns out almost all eukaryotes reproduce sexually. So this is something that we really have to understand. Mm-hmm. Why did that, why is that pattern so common? Well, the, the standard textbook explanation that I can remember is sexual reproduction allows for more genetic diversity and that's automatically good. So it almost sounded like you said that doesn't quite cut it. Quite hold water. Yeah. And, and, um, you know, there's a few reasons, like if you have selection actually generating variation, then what sex can do is bring everything back to the mean and reduce variation. So it depends on what selection is doing, but it's something, but, sex can actually collapse and reduce variation rather than promote it. 
that's one thing. And then the other thing is a lot of variation is bad. So, you mm-hmm. know, if you have popula- individuals that have survived to reproduce, variability is basically saying take the tried and true and make something else that's more likely to be deleterious. And we do see that a lot of times if you compare an organism that reproduces sexually to one that's asexual, you find that the asexual offspring are fitter because they come from parents that were fit. Hmm. And then the um, it's called a recombination load. All of these offspring that were kind of mixing and matching of genes, various genes are less fit. So those that's basically the backdrop to say you have to account for all of that. How, what does selection do? How much variation was there in the population? And what happens to sexually produced offspring versus asexually produced offspring? And But it's funny because in the end, after all of the mathematical crunching, it, it is that basic understanding about variation that sex provides. But the twist to it is why that variation is needed is that... Um, that the, the number of genomes, the number of individuals in a population is finite. And we really rapidly, natural selection really rapidly evolves the best of what's available and then runs out of steam. And so it's that finite nature of every population on this planet and the very large number of gene, genes in our genome. And you can just think about the combinatorics of we have a 3 billion base pair genome there's so many combinations of the ACTGs at those 3 billion sites that if we were asexual, then it would just be the best of that, those genomes available on earth. But if we combine them all through sex, then evolution can continue to move forward. Anyway, so that's, that's the type of math that is needed to be able to say, oh, it's got something to do with the finiteness of every population and the lack of combinations that will happen. And, and that's why sex has evolved and continues to be maintained in so many species, which is crazy, hmm. but true. Any final thoughts you want to leave people with on the general topic of evolution or SARS-CoV-2? It really is a fascinating area. I feel very privileged to have worked on it for my career. It, you know, and my I feel very privileged to have had the students to that that have not only taken these kind of questions further, but done it in new ways. You know, the next generation we're seeing um, young people really taking leadership roles with the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic. And that's because a lot of them have kind of the, the, the latest computational bioinformatics skills. They're, they're used to open data processing, GitHub and those types of things. And so it's really just this um, incredible time to be an evolutionary biologist. All right, Sally Otto, thank you for your time. You're welcome. 